I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health Right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. From MCIE. Meg Griggle and Kate Weir from Think College want you to know that inclusive higher education for people with intellectual disabilities is within reach. College gives you so many chances to grow, mature, meet people socially, explore different potential jobs. It is a place where many people go to start their life path. And giving that option to people with intellectual disabilities opens a lot of doors for them. And college isn't just for learners who have been included in K-12 general education settings. Even for those students where inclusion wasn't really as good as they might have wanted it to be. I hope they'll still consider looking at college and, and seeing where they can, they can go if that's something that they want to do. But how can learners with intellectual disabilities access these programs? I think it's important to know that, for example, you don't have to have a regular high school diploma to apply to these programs. If your district or your state is one that gives IEP diplomas or non-standard diplomas of some sort, that does not put you, those students, out of reach of college. My name is Tim Viegas, and you are listening to Think Inclusive, presented by MCIE. This podcast exists to build bridges between families, educators, and disability rights advocates to create a shared understanding of inclusive education and what inclusion looks like in the real world. For this episode, I speak with Meg Griggle and Kate Weir from Think College about why it is important for individuals with intellectual disabilities to have the option to go to college. We discuss what inclusive post-secondary education programs for students with intellectual and developmental disabilities really look like, and how the data shows that these programs are successful with learners getting jobs after graduation at three times the rate of the national average. Thank you so much for listening. And now my interview with Meg Griggle and Kate Weir from Think College. 
Today on the podcast, we'd like to welcome Meg Griggle and Kate Weir from Think College. They are here to talk about all things college for people with intellectual disabilities. Meg and Kate, welcome. Thanks. Happy to be here. Thank you, Tim. Meg, to get us started, would you just introduce yourself to our audience and then after Meg, then Kate, you can do that as well. Sure, happy to. Hi, everyone. I'm Meg Griggle. I work at the Institute for Community Inclusion at the University of Massachusetts, Boston, where I direct a number of federal grants, most of them associated with expanding access to higher ed for people with intellectual disability. Hey, I'm Kate Weir. I work the same place as Meg at UMass Boston. And my job title is that I'm the project coordinator for the Think College National Coordinating Center. Why don't we just get started on why people should be thinking of individuals with intellectual disabilities even going to college? Why is that important? Good question, Tim. Well, you know, well, college isn't necessarily everybody's choice when they leave high school. It is an option for everyone who doesn't have a disability or has a disability other than intellectual disability. And for a really long time, people with intellectual disabilities didn't even have the chance to think about it. It was never offered as an option. And because college gives you so many chances to grow, mature, meet people socially, explore different potential jobs, it is a place where many people go to start their life path. And giving that option to people with intellectual disabilities opens a lot of doors for them. Kate, did you have anything to add? I always say pretty much the same kinds of things. I just also think that that since this movement, if you will, of inclusive higher education people, ID, has been around for about 20 years, and it kind of aligns with the movement for inclusion in more inclusive settings for people in K-12 education. So as students were treated in more typical ways and had more typical educational experiences in K-12, I, I think that's really fed the desire to continue to have typical experiences after high school, including the choice to go to college. In your experience, who is more likely to go to an inclusive post-secondary program? A student who has been included, you know, through K-12 education or a student that has not been included? I think you're incredibly better prepared to go to college if you've been included throughout your educational experience. And that go kind of goes without saying. The preparation is so much better. So those students have so many more of the experiences and skills that through that inclusive education that it makes it the transition, I think, a lot easier. Also, the expectation that you'll go to college, I think, is increased dramatically when students are included mm -hmm. with their typical peers. My only little provision about that is I don't want people to hear that and think, well, my kid, we've been fighting for inclusion in K-12 and they don't do a good job in my district or my kid hasn't been able to benefit as much. I don't want them to think, well, then this isn't for my kid. So, yes, it absolutely impacts positively their desire, their thinking about college, preparing for college, having the skills to go. But even for those students where inclusion wasn't really as good as they might have wanted it to be. I hope they'll still consider looking at college and, and seeing where they can they can go if that's something that they want to do. Meg, did you have anything to add? Well, I agree with Kate. It, it 
it really does help. But what we've seen, at least with the data we collect, we have one project, which Kate mentioned earlier, the National Coordinating Center. And in that project, we work with colleges and universities all over the country that are receiving federal funds to develop or expand higher ed programs for students with ID. And the students who are coming into those programs, in many cases, only had segregated instruction or specialized instruction. And while they might have a few additional support needs, it might take them a little time to develop some of the academic skills they need to navigate their coursework or even their employment experiences, they can make up for lost time in college. And sometimes that that is an extra, you know, skill that the staff there have to help them with. But I agree with Kate, if, if you hadn't been included throughout your high school experience, that doesn't preclude you. And in fact, I think <laughs> you're going to benefit as much, if not more, because suddenly the world's going to open to you and you're going to find out, oh, wow, I can do this. I think given the opportunity and the supports, any student who really, really wants to go to college and that motivation factor is the key. If they really want it, they can succeed. So what I'm hearing is for, you know, families, even with young children who maybe have this dream that their child will go to college, but for whatever reason, the message they're getting is maybe that's not a realistic expectation, right? Oh, yeah. <laughs> we hear that all the time. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So you're, you're telling them to not be, not be discouraged. Yeah, I would agree. I think hope and vision. It sounds really soft and squishy, but parent expectations are with a like granite when it comes to predicting students' outcomes. Mm. So if a parent believes a student is going to get a job or go to college or live independently or have, you know, not live in poverty, those students are sometimes 20, 30, 40 times more likely to achieve those outcomes, depending on the study and the data set. But parent expectations are bedrock they will determine students' outcomes far more than what an IEP says or what a student's testing or assessment says. So why don't we define like what are these programs exactly? Because I think there's a misunderstanding when we talk about college that it's exactly the same path as a typical student. And let's say, you know, if the student doesn't have the grades or doesn't have the whatever it is, the thing that they need to get to go on that typical path to college. These inclusive post-secondary education programs, it's not a typical path. So help our audience understand what it is and also for the parents who are listening. Well, I, I think it's important to know that, for example, you don't have to have a regular high school diploma to apply to these programs. If your district or your state is one that gives IEP diplomas or non-standard diplomas of some sort, that does not put you, those students, out of reach of college. There is an alternative pathway into these programs. We hope that once you get in them, that you're having a very, very typical and authentic college experience, taking courses and doing internships and going to social events and living on campus. But the pathway in is different. And I think this is where people, you want people to understand that SAT scores are not required. ACT, typical grades or certain classes on your high school transcript. 
those typical things are not part of the application process for students going and applying to these programs. But it is more kind of like, do you have a desire to go to college? Do you want to get a job after college? Do you want to work in a real, real work for real pay? Do you want to live more independent, as independently as you possibly can? Do your do your parents want you to get a paid job and live mm-hmm. as independently as you possibly can? So there's a different set of admission requirements and there's a different admissions process. And then the programs almost exclusively offer a non-degree pathway. So you're not earning a bachelor's degree or an associate degree, but you are earning, hopefully, a meaningful credential and perhaps a credential that focuses on a particular career goal of yours that may focus in areas of early childhood or or forestry or, you know, whatever your areas of interest might be as a student. But they are so typically non-degree programs with an alternative admissions process. So graduates that complete the program, what do they go on to do? Well, I will say it's hard for us to speak on behalf of all graduates because we don't have data on all graduates. So Mm -hmm. what we generally draw from is as the National Coordinating Center, we are charged with evaluating programs. There's an acronym called TIPSID. It's Transition for Secondary Programs for Students with Intellectual Disability. It's a very long special ed kind of name. (laughs) It's a really good program. And it's been funded since 2010. And so since that time, we've collected data on every program that received federal funds, every class each student has taken, every work experience students have had. And in 2016, we were finally allowed to collect some outcome data. So, but again, this is, I just want to, I, I never want people to think TIPSID data represents all of the programs mm-hmm. in the country because it mm-hmm. doesn't. But the outcomes are actually quite good. So we're seeing students leaving the programs employed at 67%. And that's paid employment. Paid employment means it's paid by the employer and it's at or above minimum wage. And the the national average for adults with intellectual and developmental disabilities is 19%. Mm. So this is more than three times better outcomes. And and we now have data for up to three years out. So it's not just they had a job a year later or two years later. Now we're looking at data three years later and we're still having decent employment rates. And they're also living more independently. They have really high levels of satisfaction with their life. A smaller portion of students are continuing their post-secondary ed. They decided to go back to school, either in a different program or maybe seeking to build on whatever credits they've acquired in their tips. So I think the emerging outcomes are really, really positive. Yeah, it sounds like it. What do the programs look like? And I know that's hard because you can't say what all of them look like, but I'm I'm just going to, I'm going to pull it down to a very micro level because I was just recently at the Division on Autism and Developmental Disabilities Conference in Tampa or Clearwater, Florida. And I went to a presentation by the Arc of Jacksonville. So I think it's University of North Florida. Yeah. And their on campus transition program. And it was nice because I don't I don't think I've actually been to a 
like a presentation by a program that kind of laid it all out. So I, I'm just using that as a touch point to ask some questions. So for instance, the students in their program audit typical classes. Their students take up a spot in that class. So it's not like they're a visitor. They actually take up a spot in that class. If there's 20 spots, they take up a spot. The professors are asked whether they want to do this or not. And so unlike a in K-12, where it's it's like, well, you teach all kids. In college, it seems like that's mm-hmm. maybe a little bit different, right? And then the support specialists, I'm not sure what they're called, but the transition people in the program work with the professor on adapting or modifying the syllabus for that particular student. So there's different learning objectives for that student. So is that sound pretty typical of how it works? Or are there some variations there? What does it actually look like for this for a student to go to college in an inclusive post-secondary program? What you describe is is somewhat typical. Okay. When when I try to talk about this is like kind of generally what to expect when I'm seeing the families, mm-hmm. your students should be auditing classes based on their person-centered plan. So the, the choice of class is based on their interests, their career goals. They also have other kinds of learning experiences, ideally individualized learning experiences to help them perhaps become more independent, learn a little bit about the soft skills that are needed to be successful at the workplace. And those those are, again, ideally done individualized in an inclusive way, natural settings. I like the example that you gave from the presentation you went to, where the faculty member sort of has to agree for the student to be in their class. And that, you know, that really is part of it because one of the huge differences between high school and college is there is no mandate or right for students to go to college. It's a hard trip for families and students to take because they've been working so hard for Mm -hmm. 12 or 14 years to understand the entitlements to understand what their student is due, what law protects their student, to an environment where it's much more about asking permission and saying, is it okay with you? And and people can say, no, it is not okay with me. Mm-hmm. I think college programs, you know, once they're well-established, hopefully they're working really hard to have strong collaborative relationships with their faculty. And faculty are learning this, this is a terrific experience to have a a student with disabilities like this in their classroom and that they welcome it and they're glad to have it. But at the bottom line, at the end of the day, a college can, a faculty member can say, no, I don't want that student to take my class. Mm-hmm. And a college can say, we don't want to have this program anymore. I mean, so it's it's really mm-hmm. kind of a different environment, which requires a different set of advocacy skills on sure. the form of, on the part of parents and students. And a big, just before I finish on that advocacy piece, a big piece of what a lot of college programs are doing for families is hopefully supporting them to make the transition from being the parent of a kid who's under IDEA and you are in there every day fighting and advocating and reminding about the law and the protections to the parent of a young adult who needs to be developing their own advocacy skills, their own voice their own, making their own choices 
And in it, within an environment, which is a college setting, that isn't, isn't set up for a ton of family intervention. There's a certain amount. We'll have our family open houses and we'll maybe send the family newsletters and, and we'll try to keep families involved. But certainly college faculty don't, don't speak to their students' parents about right. what's going on in the classroom. They don't go to meetings with the, with the students' parents to you know, update them on, their, on whether they're doing a good job. So that's a big transition for families as well. And it, it's another thing that we, we work with programs about is to, is to acknowledge the difficulty of that transition and to support families through that transition. But it does, it does kind of have to occur. You didn't even ask me that question, but I, I kind of got there. No I'm, no, I'm glad you brought it up. About about expectations, yeah, yeah, for parents. And I, while you said that, I was just thinking that, you know, you address the things that happen in the classroom, but, you know, the students live, basically live on campus, right? I mean, for most of these programs. So I would There's imagine... The, of the, yeah, of about the 300, pro, the little over 300 programs, about a, a little over 100 of them are residential. Oh, okay. So not quite half. Okay. All right. And it's... You know, there's a lot of community college programs or non-residential, mm-hmm. but then even sometimes on a campus that's residential, the program may not offer residential support. So you oh, get to okay. look at that. So for those that do offer that residential support, what would be the, the uh, different expectations for the family if, if a student lives on campus? I mean, I would imagine you'd want to have as much independence as possible. Mm-hmm. Talked a lot. You want to talk? <laughs> I can't. Meg, just keep Meg what do you think? <laughs> well, you know, parents' expectations and what programs are going to provide don't always align when it comes to the residential experience. So mm-hmm. I think sometimes parents may expect, well, you're going to help them wake up and you're going to help them clean their room. And most programs will say, no, you're a college student. You're going to have to learn how to wake up and get to your class and we'll give you support as you get started. And certainly students with intellectual disability who've never lived away from home for even a short period of time might require some additional or more long-term supports around that. But the goal is the student participating like other college students. And what the program provides I think should be student specific. Some students might need more supports than others. You know, a lot of the programs use peer mentors as Mm -hmm. social supports. They might provide some academic or campus navigation support. So they build in these Mm -hmm. mechanisms because what you don't want is some staff person coming around, waking students up. This is about inclusion. This is about providing students with authentic college experiences. And you know what college students do? They miss classes sometimes because they Mm -hmm. overslept. And sometimes they don't do a great job on assignments. I'm not saying you want to plan to fail, but you want to leave room for growth. And part of that is that dignity of risk piece. Let a student take a course and it doesn't go well. They're going to reflect on why didn't that go well? It was a big lecture class. I, I thought I liked early childhood. I hate little kids. You know? like, <laughs> that's part of the learning. So making this perfect experience where everything goes right, that's also not what I think is the intention. And you have to help parents get to the point where they recognize that those blips, those trips, those 
diversions from what looks like success are actually part of the process. Mm. Is there anything about from when you first started this work till now, is there anything that has really surprised you? I just happened to say something about that exact topic to somebody yesterday. We were just talking about this huge leap that it is for young people with intellectual disability to go and live on campus and live in their own dorm and have some of these expectations with supports, but you're going to get yourself up. You're going to take your own medication. You're going to make it to classes on time and, and keep to a schedule that isn't the same every day. Remember college schedules? They're not every day nine to three. So what we hear over and over and over again is how incredibly proud students are of themselves and that parents are. Like They never in their lives got themselves up without me getting them up for school. And now they're getting themselves up because the expectation is there. When the environment expects a lot of you often rise to the occasion, and that seems to happen a lot. And the other thing is we don't always hear, but we hear a fair amount when things don't go well, a student mm. isn't terribly successful, or a family's pretty disappointed with the level of support, or a program has a very challenging experience with a student. At the national level, we're not going to hear every one of those stories. But I said this because we were talking about one of those stories we had heard, and I thought, you know, it's kind of amazing how few times we do hear these. It doesn't seem to happen all that much. You'd think that it would be the riskiest thing in the world, and these students are, it's like, oh my gosh. Imagine all the things that can go wrong. That many things don't seem to go wrong. Or when they do, they're, you know, they're managed by probably a combination of, of good staff in the programs and the college resources that themselves, because colleges are environments that are set up to, to support young people who are living alone mm. on their own for the first time. So in those ways, the systems that colleges have in place, they're pretty much what kids at ID need as well. Because they're the same thing that any 18-year-old needs if they've never done their own laundry and never decided that they don't just have cake for dinner, that they can, <laughs> if they want to, just get all the soft serve if they want. Right. And that's right. it for a week. And then they have to they have to learn, you know, right. how not to do that. So if there are a combination of the resources that are available, it seems like, gosh, this kind of goes pretty well. I mean, over probably 10,000 students with intellectual disability, probably many more than that, mm -hmm. have participated in one of these programs and graduated and gone on to, to good jobs. And the world hasn't ended. Nothing terrible is... <laughs> so, I don't know. That's probably not a good example, but that's what surprised me yesterday. That's that I great. Was no, thank on. you for sharing that. <laughs> Meg, do you have any I, thoughts? Well, I, when you brought up laundry, it just made me laugh because I have an 18-year-old college freshman who is going to school. And she said the first two or three weeks, she witnessed at least two or three of her peers cry when faced with doing their own laundry. <laughs> These are not people with any identified disability. Had to call their parents and say, I don't know what to do. They were all overwhelmed. And, <laughs> and I think that's a beautiful thing because guess what? Students with intellectual disability aren't the only college kid who doesn't know how to do their laundry or hasn't right. been responsible for certain things before. And one program we were working with during the planning stage, we were meeting with the residential services and, 
you know, we're very tiptoeing around. Everybody's like, well, you know, what we'd like is every student has their own dorm room. They get matched with a roommate. And they're like, yeah, we do that for everybody. Get them in the system. And they're like, well, they might need some supports about independent living. They're like, yeah, we do that for everybody. We have a how to do your laundry class yeah. for all incoming freshmen. We'll roll them right into that. Right. And it was just so affirming. Like Kate said, like, this is how you learn. So I think we are sometimes underestimating the amount of available support and just you know, discrete supports that the, the the level, everyone needs something different. Colleges work with working parents. Colleges work with parents of young children. These are all different student profiles. They're used to diverse learners. We're just adding a slightly different group of diverse learners, but they, they have done this stuff for years. So we're just, we're asking them to tweak things mm-hmm. to make it work for one additional set of diverse learners. That's a great point. So how many programs are available right now or maybe listed on your site? Do you have, I'm sure you have that data. Yeah, it's like 312, I think, are in our public-facing directory. And so... Looking forward, do you have like a goal set in mind for like, we would love for X number more programs to be available? Or is that not something that you are, Well, you know? We, we don't fund programs. We don't mm-hmm. have fun. Like we don't, and we don't get to determine who gets funds. Sometimes there's a misconception because Think College is sometimes the only entity people might be aware of at the national level. Mm-hmm. They might think we have some input on who receives federal funds or grants, and we, we don't. We, we, we apply just like everyone else for all of our federal dollars. So having said that, we're working constantly with colleges and universities who come to us and say, hey, we're trying to get something off the ground. Can you help us with some planning? Can you help us figure out staffing? Can you help us understand how to set up inclusive course access or employment? So I guess I, I wouldn't say we have a target. I, what popped into my head is Ruth Bader Ginsburg, like, when will there be enough women on the court? <laughs> like when there's yeah. nine? <laughs> yeah, when well, all so, of them are. Yeah. So I think there will be yeah, enough. We have, this, we have this part of our presentations where we're presenting about this topic and we'll say, isn't it great? There's 312 programs. And then, we, then the next slide is that's 6% of the institutions yeah. of higher ed in the United States. So. Yeah. Don't everybody get all comfy cozy. Yeah, wherever we need to be. When every higher ed program in the country has a welcome mat for students with ID, I will say we have met our target. Yes, I love it. Yeah, <laughs> I love no. that. Oh, so I just wanted to make sure we had a chance to talk about what is on thinkcollege.net and then who are the kinds of people that you want to talk to? So is it, you know, people in higher ed that are, you know, thinking about a program? Is it parents? Is it educators? Like who, who's your target audience with your site? I'll do a a brief overview of it. Kate has been, Kate has really created our website over and over and over again. She has rebuilt this (laughs) thing and retooled it based on the needs of the people who come to us. 
But I would say everybody you just mentioned, Tim, we, we have created resources for families, for students, for educators, for transition educators, for higher ed personnel, for peer mentors, for program personnel. I think program personnel is an emerging group because now the, the number of programs providing services and enrolling students has grown. And so has the need for their support training. So we've created a lot of mechanisms for both direct support and peer-to-peer support. But I'll let Kate talk about the website specifically. On thinkcollege.net, we have a lot of resources that describe all the different projects we have because Think College is kind of an umbrella for multiple projects, one of which is the National Coordinating Center that I work for. And then there's multiple others that Meg is involved with and other members of our staff. But primarily, I think for the public, they can find out about all the training events that we're doing. There's recorded webinars you can watch. There's a resource library that's searchable by a number of different topics. So you can filter by the topic you're interested in. And we also create pages, which are sort of curated resources because the library has well over a thousand resources and it can be a little overwhelming. Of course, our college search list, also a a quick link to our help desk. It is a Monday through Friday help desk, but we try to be really, really responsive and we take questions from anybody on any topic related to post-secondary education for students with intellectual disability. We have 16 technical assistance consultants either on our staff or consulting with us who answer questions on a wide variety of subjects. It's one of my favorite things. I and others talk to a lot of families who come to Think College and try really hard to sort of learn everything by reading and searching and clicking and then just go, oh my God, what? I don't, what next? And we'll get on the phone with you and sort of help you look through things or answer your questions. And of course, there's tons of resources for colleges and universities who are looking to develop or enhance the programs that they have as well. Thanks, Kate. I I want to make sure folks in your listening audience also know that there's some kind of low touch stuff if people want to get involved. Like we have affinity groups, which are just little communities of practice that people get together like quarterly to talk about whether it's employment or social access on campus or VR. So if somebody wants to just kind of come and sit and listen. You don't, you're not required to attend. You can just kind of bounce in and out. If you're interested in research, there's one on research. There's one on state consortium development. So places that are kind of having a lot of programs developed and they want to work together, how to do that. Um, And then we also run a couple Facebook groups that are private ones, Mm -hmm. a parent Facebook group for parents to talk to parents about this was my experience or these are my questions I want to hear from other parents. And then we have a program staff Facebook group so that program people can quietly talk to other program people. And I have to say during COVID, when the whole world shut down, we developed that resource and we did some support groups for program staff who were madly scrambling to shut down their campus, transition Mm -hmm. to online learning in some cases, have students move home. And this group of professionals are the most generous, supportive group. Mm -hmm. They came to the table. They were like, oh, we tried this. Use this tool. We modified this here. You take it. They, they crowdsourced their solutions in such a dynamic and generous way. I got to tell you, it was just, I've been in special ed or disability education work for 30 years. And it, it was phenomenal 
to witness how these people just had each other's backs. So it's a, it's a good I, I'm going to just hide. When you mentioned the groups, I just wanted to mention that we also have an emerging advocates group for students that we, that we do. That's, it's run by people with disabilities for people with disabilities. And that meets regularly. And right now, we have a very cool opportunity for college students with intellectual disability to apply to be a Think College policy advocate and get some training on policy advocacy. So those are the kinds of things that you can find when you stay in touch with us by signing up for a newsletter once a month in your inbox with all the new things we're developing and all the activities we're involved with. That's a lot. That's a lot. I'm, I'm thank lot. you for yeah, thank you for laying all that out for our audience. And if you're listening and you are interested in anything that we talked about, please visit thinkcollege.net and use that help desk, you know. Absolutely. Is there is there anything else that you wanted to talk about while we're wrapping up anything else that we missed maybe? Um I think I just want to walk away or anybody who listened to this walk away with this is possible. Mm. You know, when you asked about what, what are we surprised about? When I started this work in 1998 and everybody sort of looked confused when I mentioned it, I, I'm surprised that we've had federal funding that's been sponsored, you know, completely supported by both political parties for 12 years. I'm mm-hmm. surprised that we've been able to have federal legislation support students getting federal student aid. This, the legitimacy of this field and its potential. And then I'm surprised, I'm actually not that surprised, but I'm really grateful. This data that we now have, 12 years of data, supports our supposition from 15 years ago when we said, you know what, if people with ID go to college, they're going to have better outcomes. And the data supports it. These students can go to real classes and get real jobs and leave with a credential to get a better job. So it is possible because it's happening and we have data. So I think like walk away knowing it's not just a nice idea. It's actually the reality right now. And we need to make it the reality for more people. I'm going to just say something about one more website. We also have a a student corner. So it's a page for students to learn more about that's written for them and hopefully helps them to explore themselves about the options and learning more about what it means to go to college. And we have a, if you go to our website, right on the homepage menu bar, it says students and families. And if you click down on that, you'll find the student corner. You also find the family resources page. And there's a lot of things on here that I think we we're aiming it to families, but I think it would really helps transition educators as well. Because it helps everybody just learn more about what does it mean to transition from high school to college. We talk about some ways you can use your IEP to get ready for college. We talk about skills that students benefit from having when they go to college. There's lots of student stories. So even though it says it's for families, I think families hopefully very can benefit from, from going there. But I think educators as well as they begin to sort of try to be good ambassadors for this message to their students and families because Mm -hmm. we hope that you will as a special educator or any kind of educator that you at least know enough about it to say i know that it's possible i know thousands of kids that have done it and continue to do it and there's some ways that we can think about how we can prepare our students to go on to college we ought to be doing just that well 
Meg Griggle and Kate Weir. Thank you so much for your time and being on the Think Inclusive podcast. Thanks for letting us join It's been our you. pleasure. Thank you. Think Inclusive is written, edited, and sound designed by Tim Viegas and is a production of MCIE. Original music by Miles Kredich. I hope you enjoyed today's episode. And if you did, here are some ways that you can help our podcast grow. Share it with your friends, family, and colleagues. And if you haven't already, give us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. Special thanks to our patrons, Melissa H., Veronica E., Sonia A., Pamela P., Mark C., Kathy B., Kathleen T., Jarrett T., Gabby M., Aaron P., and Paula W. for their support of Think Inclusive. Another way you can help support Think Inclusive is to become a patron. Go to patreon.com slash thinkinclusivepodcast and become a patron today. For more information about inclusive education or to learn how MCIE can partner with you and your school or district, visit mcie.org. We will be back in a couple of weeks. Thanks for your time and attention. And remember, inclusion always works. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code Buttery. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.